0: section 13 of our old home this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org our old home by nathaniel hawthorne section 13 near oxford on a fine morning in september we set out on an excursion to blenheim the sculptor and myself being seated on the box of our four-horse carriage two more of the party in the dicky and the others less agreeably accommodated inside. We had no coachman but two postilions in short scarlet jackets and leather breeches with top-boots, each astride of a horse, so that, all the way along, when not otherwise attracted, we had the interesting spectacle of their up-and-down bobbing in the saddle. It was a sunny and beautiful day, a specimen of the perfect English weather, just warm enough for comfort, indeed a little too warm perhaps in the noontide sun, yet retaining a mere spice or suspicion of austerity which made it all the more enjoyable. The country between Oxford and Blenheim is not particularly interesting, being almost level or undulating very slightly, nor is Oxfordshire, agriculturally, a rich part of England. We saw one or two hamlets, and I especially remember a picturesque old gabled house at a turnpike gate, and altogether the wayside scenery had an aspect of old-fashioned English life, but there was nothing very memorable till we reached Woodstock, and stopped to water our horses at the Black Bear. This neighborhood is called New Woodstock, but has by no means the brand new appearance of an American town being a large village of stone houses most of them pretty well time-worn and weather-stained the black bear is an ancient inn large and respectable with balustrated staircases and intricate passages and corridors and queer old pictures and engravings hanging in the entries and apartments we ordered lunch the most delightful of english institutions next to dinner to be ready against our return and then resumed our drive to Blenheim. The park-gate of Blenheim stands close to the end of the village street of Woodstock. Immediately on passing through its portals we saw the stately palace in the distance, but made a wide circuit of the park before approaching it. This noble park contains three thousand acres of land, and is fourteen miles in circumference. Having been in part a royal domain before it was granted to the Marlborough family, it contains many trees of unsurpassed antiquity, and has doubtless been the haunt of game and deer for centuries. We saw pheasants in abundance, feeding in the open lawns and glades, and the stags tossed their antlers and bounded away, not affrighted, but only shy and gamesome, as we drove by. It is a magnificent pleasure-ground, not too tamely kept, nor rigidly subjected within rule, but vast enough to have lapsed back into nature again, after all the pains the landscape-gardeners of Queen Anne's time bestowed on it, when the domain of Blenheim was scientifically laid out. The great, knotted, slanting trunks of the old oaks do not now look as if man had much intermeddled with their growth and postures. The trees of later date, that were set out in the great duke's time, are arranged on the plan of the order of battle in which the illustrious commander ranked his troops at Blenheim, but the ground-covered is so extensive, and the trees now so luxuriant, that the spectator is not disagreeably conscious of their standing in a military array, as if Orpheus had summoned them together by beat of drum. The effect must have been very formal a hundred and fifty years ago, but has ceased to be so, although the trees, I presume, have kept their ranks with even more fidelity than Marlborough's veterans did. One of the park-keepers on horseback rode beside our carriage, pointing out the choice views and glimpses at the palace as we drove through the domain. There is a very large artificial lake, To say the truth, it seemed to me fully worthy of being compared with the Welsh lakes at least, if not with those of Westmoreland, which was created by Capability Brown, and fills the basin that he scooped for it, just as if nature had poured these broad waters into one of her own valleys. It is a most beautiful object at a distance, and not less so on its immediate banks, for the water is very pure being supplied by a small river of the choicest transparency, which was turned thitherward for the purpose. And Blenheim owes not merely this water scenery, but almost all its other beauties to the contrivance of man. Its natural features are not striking, but art has affected such wonderful things that the uninstructed visitor would never guess that nearly the whole scene was but the embodied thought of a human mind. A skillful painter hardly does more for his blank sheet of canvas than the landscape gardener, the planter, the arranger of trees, has done for the monotonous surface of Blenheim, making the most of every undulation, flinging down a hillock, a big lump of earth out of a giant's hand, wherever it was needed, putting in beauty as often as there was a niche for it, opening vistas to every point that deserved to be seen, and throwing a veil of impenetrable foliage around what ought to be hidden. And then, to be sure, the lapse of a century has softened the harsh outline of man's labours, and has given the place back to nature again, with the addition of what consummate science could achieve. After driving a good way we came to a battlemented tower and adjoining house which used to be the residence of the ranger of Woodstock Park, who held charge of the property for the king before the Duke of Marlborough possessed it. The keeper opened the door for us, and in the entrance hall we found various things that had to do with the chase and woodland sports. We mounted the staircase through several stories up to the top of the tower, whence there was a view of the spires of Oxford, and of points much farther off very indistinctly seen, however, as is usually the case with the misty distances of England. Returning to the ground-floor, we were ushered into the room in which died Wilmot, the wicked Earl of Rochester, who was ranger of the park in Charles II's time. It is a low and bare little room, with a window in front and a smaller one behind, and in the contiguous entrance-room there are the remains of an old bedstead, "'beneath the canopy of which perhaps Rochester may have made the penitent end that Bishop Burnett attributes to him. "'I hardly know what it is in this poor fellow's character which affects us with greater tenderness on his behalf than for all the other profligates of his day, who seem to have been neither better nor worse than himself.' I rather suspect that he had a human heart which never quite died out of him, and the warmth of which is still faintly perceptible amid the dissolute trash which he left behind. Methinks, if such good fortune ever befell a bookish man, I should choose this lodge for my own residence, with the topmost room of the tower for a study, and all the seclusion of cultivated wildness beneath to ramble in. There being no such possibility, we drove on, catching glimpses of the palace in new points of view, and by and by came to Rosamond's well. The particular tradition that connects fair Rosamond with it is not now in my memory, but if Rosamond ever lived and loved, and ever had her abode in the maze of Woodstock, it may well be believed that she and Henry sometimes sat beside this spring. It gushes out from a bank, through some old stonework, and dashes its little cascade, about as abundant as one might turn out of a large pitcher, into a pool, whence it steals away towards the lake, which is not far removed. The water is exceedingly cold, and as pure as the legendary Rosamond was not, and is fancied to possess medicinal virtues, like springs at which saints have quenched their thirst. There were two or three old women and some children in attendance with tumblers, which they present to visitors, full of the consecrated water, but most of us filled the tumblers for ourselves and drank. Thence we drove to the triumphal pillar which was erected in honor of the great Duke, and on the summit of which he stands, in Roman garb, holding a winged figure of victory in his hand, as an ordinary man might hold a bird. The column is, I know, not how many feet high, but lofty enough, at any rate, to elevate Marlborough far above the rest of the world, and to be visible a long way off, and is so placed in reference to other objects that, wherever the hero wandered about his grounds, and especially as he issued from his mansion, he must inevitably have been reminded of his glory. In truth, until I came to Blenheim, I never had so positive and material an idea of what fame really is, of what the admiration of his country can do for a successful warrior, as I carry away with me and shall always retain. Unless he had the moral force of a thousand men together, his egotism, beholding himself everywhere, imbuing the entire soil, growing in the woods, rippling and gleaming in the water, and pervading the very air with his greatness, must have been swollen within him like the liver of a Strasbourg goose. On the huge tablets inlaid into the pedestal of the column, the entire act of Parliament bestowing Blenheim on the Duke of Marlborough and his posterity is engraved in deep letters painted black on the marble ground. The pillar stands exactly a mile from the principal front of the palace, in a straight line with the precise centre of its entrance hall, so that, as already said, it was the duke's principal object of contemplation. We now proceeded to the palace gate, which is a great pillared archway of wonderful loftiness and state, giving admittance to a spacious quadrangle a stout elderly and rather surly footman in livery appeared at the entrance and took possession of whatever canes umbrellas and parasols he could get hold of in order to claim sixpence on our departure this had a somewhat ludicrous effect there is much public outcry against the meanness of the present duke in his arrangements for the admission of visitors chiefly of course his native countrymen to view the magnificent palace which their forefathers bestowed upon his own in many cases it seems hard that a private abode should be exposed to the intrusion of the public merely because the proprietor has inherited or created a splendor which attracts general curiosity insomuch that his home loses its sanctity and seclusion, for the very reason that it is better than other men's houses. But in the case of Blenheim, the public have certainly an equitable claim to admission, both because the fame of its first inhabitant is a national possession, and because the mansion was a national gift, one of the purposes of which was to be a token of gratitude and glory to the English people themselves. If a man chooses to be illustrious, he is very likely to incur some little inconveniences himself, and entail them on his posterity. Nevertheless, his present grace of Marlborough absolutely ignores the public claim above suggested, and, with a thrift of which even the hero of Blenheim himself did not set the example, sells tickets admitting six persons at ten shillings. If only one person enters the gate, he must pay for six, and if there are seven in company, two tickets are required to admit them. The attendants, who meet you everywhere in the park and palace, expect fees on their own private account, their noble master pocketing the ten shillings, but, to be sure, the visitor gets his money's worth since it buys him the right to speak just as freely of the duke of Marlborough as if he were the keeper of the Creamorne gardens. The above was written two or three years ago or more, and the duke of that day has since transmitted his coronet to his successor, who we understand has adopted much more liberal arrangements, There is seldom anything to criticize or complain of as regards the facility of obtaining admission to interesting private houses in England. Passing through a gateway on the opposite side of the quadrangle, we had before us the noble classic front of the palace with its two projecting wings. We ascended the lofty steps of the portal and were admitted into the entrance hall, the height of which, from floor to ceiling, is not much less than seventy feet, being the entire elevation of the edifice. The hall is lighted by windows in the upper story, and, it being a clear bright day, was very radiant with lofty sunshine, amid which a swallow was flitting to and fro. The ceiling was painted by Sir James Thornhill in some allegorical design, doubtless commemorative of Marlborough's victories, the purport of which I did not take the trouble to make out, contenting myself with the general effect which was most splendidly and effectively ornamental we were guided through the show-rooms by a very civil person who allowed us to take pretty much our own time in looking at the pictures the collection is exceedingly valuable many of these works of art having been presented to the great duke by the crowned heads of england or the continent one room was all aglow with pictures by rubens and there were works of Raphael and many other famous painters, any one of which would be sufficient to illustrate the meanest house that might contain it. I remember none of them, however, not being in a picture seeing mood, so well as Van Dyck's large and familiar picture of Charles I on horseback, with a figure and face of melancholy dignity such as never by any other hand was put on canvas. Yet on considering this face of Charles, which I find often repeated in half-lengths, and translating it from the ideal into literalism, I doubt whether the unfortunate king was really a handsome or impressive-looking man. A high, thin-ridged nose, a meager, hatchet face, and reddish hair and beard, these are the literal facts. It is the painter's art that has thrown such pensive and shadowy grace around him. On our passage through this beautiful suite of apartments we saw through the vista of open doorways a boy of ten or twelve years old coming towards us from the farther rooms. He had on a straw hat, a linen sack that certainly had been washed and rewashed for a summer or two, and grey trousers a good deal worn a dress, in short, which an American mother in middle station would have thought too shabby for her darling schoolboy's ordinary wear. This urchin's face was rather pale, as those of English children are apt to be, quite as often as our own, but he had pleasant eyes, an intelligent look, and an agreeable boyish manner. It was Lord Sunderland, grandson of the present duke, and heir, though not, I think, in the direct line, of the blood of the great Marlborough. And of the title and estate after passing through the first suite of rooms we were conducted through a corresponding suite on the opposite side of the entrance hall these latter apartments are most richly adorned with tapestries wrought and presented to the first duke by a sisterhood of flemish nuns they look like great glowing pictures and completely cover the walls of the rooms The designs purport to represent the Duke's battles and sieges, and everywhere we see the hero himself as large as life and as gorgeous in scarlet and gold as the Holy Sisters could make him, with a three-cornered hat and flowing wig, reining in his horse and extending his leading staff in the attitude of command. Next to Marlborough, Prince Eugene is the most prominent figure. In the way of upholstery there can never have been anything more magnificent than these tapestries, and, considered as works of art, they have quite as much merit as nine pictures out of ten. One whole wing of the palace is occupied by the library, a most noble room with a vast perspective length from end to end. Its atmosphere is brighter and more cheerful than that of most libraries, a wonderful contrast to the old college libraries of Oxford, and perhaps less sombre and suggestive of thoughtfulness than any large library ought to be, inasmuch as so many studious brains as have left their deposit on the shelves cannot have conspired without producing a very serious and ponderous result. Both walls and ceiling are white, and there are elaborate doorways and fireplaces of white marble. The floor is of oak, so highly polished that our feet slipped upon it as if it had been New England ice. At one end of the room stands a statue of Queen Anne in her royal robes, which are so admirably designed and exquisitely wrought that the spectator certainly gets a strong conception of her royal dignity, while the face of the statue, fleshy and feeble, doubtless conveys a suitable idea of her personal character. The marble of this work, long as it has stood there, is as white as snow just fallen, and must have required most faithful and religious care to keep it so. As for the volumes of the library, they are wired within the cases, and turn their gilded backs upon the visitor, keeping their treasures of wit and wisdom just as intangible as if still in the unwrought minds of human thought. I remember nothing else in the palace except the chapel, to which we were conducted last, and where we saw a splendid monument to the first duke and duchess, sculptured by Risbrack, at the cost, it is said, of forty thousand pounds. The design includes the statues of the deceased dignitaries, and various allegorical flourishes, fantasies, and confusions. And beneath sleep the great duke and his proud wife, their veritable bones and dust, and probably all the Marlboros that have since died. It is not quite a comfortable idea that these mouldy ancestors still inhabit after their fashion the house where their successors spend the passing day, but the adulation lavished upon the hero of Blenheim could not have been consummated unless the palace of his lifetime had become likewise a stately mausoleum over his remains, and such we felt it all to be after gazing at his tomb. The next business was to see the private gardens. An old Scotch undergardener admitted us and led the way, and seemed to have a fair prospect of earning the fee all by himself, but by and by another respectable Scotchman made his appearance and took us in charge, proving to be the head-gardener in person. He was extremely intelligent and agreeable, talking both scientifically and lovingly about trees and plants of which there is every variety capable of english cultivation positively the garden of eden cannot have been more beautiful than this private garden of blenheim it contains three hundred acres and by the artful circumlocution of the paths and the undulations and the skillfully interposed clumps of trees is made to appear limitless the sylvan delights of a whole country are compressed into this space as whole fields of persian roses go to the concoction of an ounce of precious attar the world within that garden fence is not the same weary and dusty world with which we outside mortals are conversant it is a finer lovelier more harmonious nature and the great mother lends herself kindly to the gardener's will knowing that he will make evident the half-obliterated traits of her pristine and ideal beauty, and allow her to take all the credit and praise to herself. I doubt whether there is ever any winter within that precinct, any clouds except the fleecy ones of summer. The sunshine that I saw there rests upon my recollection of it as if it were eternal. The lawns and glades are like the memory of places where one has wandered when first in love— what a good and happy life might be spent in a paradise like this and yet at that very moment the besotted duke ah i have let out a secret which i meant to keep myself but the ten shillings must pay for all was in that very garden for the guide told us so and cautioned our young people not to be too uproarious and if in a condition for arithmetic was thinking of nothing nobler than how many ten-shilling tickets had that day been sold. Republican as I am, I should still love to think that noblemen lead noble lives, and that all this stately and beautiful environment may serve to elevate them a little way above the rest of us. If it fail to do so, the disgrace falls equally upon the whole race of mortals as on themselves, because it proves that no more favorable conditions of existence Would eradicate our vices and weaknesses how sad if this be so even a herd of swine eating the acorns under those magnificent oaks of blenheim would be cleanlier and of better habits than ordinary swine well all that i have written is pitifully meagre as a description of blenheim and i hate to leave it without some more adequate expression of the noble edifice with its rich domain all as i saw them in that beautiful sunshine FOR IF A DAY HAD BEEN CHOSEN OUT OF A HUNDRED YEARS, IT COULD NOT HAVE BEEN A FINER ONE. BUT I MUST GIVE UP THE ATTEMPT, ONLY FURTHER REMARKING THAT THE FINEST TREES HERE WERE CEDARS, OF WHICH I SAW ONE, AND THERE MAY HAVE BEEN MANY SUCH, IMMENSE IN GIRTH AND NOT LESS THAN THREE CENTURIES OLD. I LIKEWISE SAW A VAST HEAP OF LAUREL, TWO HUNDRED FEET IN CIRCUMFERENCE, ALL GROWING FROM ONE ROOT and the gardener offered to show us another growth of twice that stupendous size. If the great duke himself had been buried in that spot, his heroic heart could not have been the seed of a more plentiful crop of laurels. We now went back to the black bear and sat down to a cold collation, of which we ate abundantly, and drank, in the good old English fashion, a due proportion of various delightful liquors. A stranger in England, in his rambles to various quarters of the country, may learn little in regard to wines, for the ordinary English taste is simple though sound in that particular, but he makes acquaintance with more varieties of hop and malt liquor than he previously supposed to exist. I remember a sort of foaming stuff called hop champagne, which is very vivacious and appears to be a hybrid between ale and bottled cider another excellent tipple for warm weather is concocted by mixing brown stout or bitter ale with ginger-beer the foam of which stirs up the heavier liquor from its depths forming a compound of singular vivacity and sufficient body but of all things ever brewed from malt unless it be trinity ale of cambridge which i drank long afterwards and which barry cornwall has celebrated in immortal verse Commend me to the archdeacon, as the Oxford scholars call it, in honor of the jovial dignitary who first taught these erudite worthies how to brew their favorite nectar. John Barleycorn has given his very heart to this admirable liquor. It is a superior kind of ale, the Prince of Ales, with a richer flavor and mightier spirit than you can find elsewhere in this weary world. Much have we been strengthened and encouraged by the potent blood of the Archdeacon. End of section 13